From here on out, boys, mandatory examinations will be held before each and every match. And boys, I'm talking rectal exams. What? So when we get done here tonight with this incredible speech, I want each and every one of you to go to the back and see Dr. Jellyfinger. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has quickly revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, being joined by my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Nate, are you ready for another data-gathering session of WCW Nitro? I'm going to try to make it through just for the uh, people out there, but I'm letting you know off the top, Brian, I'm I'm a little worn out from uh, last episode's escapade. Not only are we gathering data on how these episodes affect us in the moment— But do you think that putting three episodes of Nitro into your viewing diet has changed you? Are you starting to feel any physical, any emotional, any mental changes having this become a part of your life once again? Man, I think it's it's good to see these 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 familiar faces, even if uh, the setting that they're in is is subjective in terms of quality. Uh, So from from an emotional standpoint, I think I've been more hopeful than depressed, uh, but when when those depressing segments do come, and usually they feature everyone's favorite stable, the NWO 2000, it, it, it hits like a ton of bricks, Brian, man. It really does, and I think the biggest indicator, the biggest test of how this program is warping your mind, did you watch Sold Out? <laughs> if I'm, if I'm going to keep it 100 yeah. on Keep It 2000, I... I watched a couple of the matches. Yeah, me too. I didn't. I didn't watch the entire card because I didn't. I didn't. I didn't feel like it. But I definitely, you know, was there for the uh, Harlem Heat uh, intra squad scrimmage, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and uh, I had to see how the uh, main event uh, was played out. So I I did stick around for a couple matches on sold out. And I think that for me was the real indicator. This thing is starting to twist my mind. That I watched an entire three hour show that I didn't have to review. <laughs> Full of shitty wrestling. Just because I was liking these characters, I'm starting to actually kind of care about these storylines. And yeah, you just mentioned it. There's a lot of mystery and intrigue surrounding this pay-per-view. But before we get in the mindset of what was happening backstage at WCW that particular week in 2000, let's see where the world was at. Let's see where the country was at. Let's do our little time capsule segment. Now, in terms of news of the day, do you know what national holiday this Nitro landed on? Oh, uh, let's see. And this is always fun for me because it, it it puts me on the spot. Like last episode when I thought we were <laughs> having an early presidential inauguration. Not only was it a year early, but it was a week early from when it would have been if we had a presidential <laughs> inauguration. Uh, but damn, let's see. It's it's Is it MLK Day? It is MLK Day. Man, so I, like we didn't even get the uh, traditional 
a WWE move of highlighting our black wrestlers on, on this episode of Nitro. Now, now I'm, I'm feeling some type of way. Well, that's the thing. Uh, every MLK day, Vince McMahon reminds us that him and Martin were best friends. <laughs> Let's talk about lighter news that's happening in the world. Now, last week, we discussed the world of music in which Xtina had thrown Santana out. Santana is done. His 12-week reign with Smooth is over, and now Xtina is topping the charts with What a Girl Wants. So let's instead flip over to the world of cinema and movies. And what was the number one movie in America this weekend? The brand new release next Friday. Oh. Some days are better than others. Damn. But nothing is better. Love Fridays. Than next Friday. Now, Nate, I got to admit, I've only seen the first Friday, so I don't know how the second Friday holds up. Was it a worthy continuation in the Friday canon? Next Friday is is interesting because on its own, it's a really solid comedy, especially one of the you know urban uh, comedies that that was prevalent at the time. Uh, but the issue with Next Friday is you replace Chris Tucker with Mike Epps, uh, so instead of Smokey, we get the debut of Cousin Day Day, and and I think Day Day's a funny character in his own right, but Smokey was so iconic if if, if we can use that word when return when referring to a stoner movie uh that it, it, it was some big shoes to fill for mike epps but there's a lot of great stuff in, in next friday man you got pinky driving the pink cadillac you got the the little sister that's bigger than the big sister you got the baby joker the aztec warrior i mean aztec warrior this is a really really it's a funny movie uh but i do think it it doesn't get the credit it deserves because it didn't have uh chris tucker but uh I, I gotta say, I like this movie better than Friday After Next, which is the uh, Christmas movie, which uh, we we won't get to on the, over the course of this uh, series. Because I I have not seen this film, I'm curious: is it supposed to be the next Friday, seven days removed from the last film, or is it just another Friday? No, that, that's the literal conceit because it takes place right after the uh, fight between uh, Craig Ice Cube's character and Debo, played by uh, future WWE Hall of Famer Zeus Tiny Lister. <laughs> uh, it, it picks up right after that. And, and so the conceit is that, uh, pops wants to take Craig away from, from the violence in the hood. So he takes him to his uh, brother's house. And so Craig gets to spend, you know, some, uh, nice time in, in Rancho Cucamonga with uncle Elroy. And then is Friday after next, then two weeks removed from the first film. No, I think Friday after next, there is a time disparity because it's the Christmas movie. Because I always thought that was weird. That So the first film takes place two weeks away from Christmas, but no one mentions it. <laughs> yeah, that, there's, there's a little bit of creative uh, uh, booking with, with, the, with the third film in the franchise. But yeah, the first two are, are concurrent, uh, are, are right after each other, you know. Uh, but then the third film starring Cat Williams. I think that was like Cat Williams' breakout performance yeah. as uh, Money Mike. Uh, and we could spend a whole other five minutes talking about the career of Cat Williams, uh, Brian Mann. But uh, that film takes place a couple months later. And, and, and if, if you're interested, they, there is talk of, of that uh, last Friday movie uh, coming out sometime in the, in the near future slash distant future because it depends on if uh, Cat Williams and or Chris Tucker can get their lives together. So, uh that's always hanging out there if you want to start a podcast about that, Brian. I just want the Friday films and the Are We There Yet films to merge. You know, <laughs> like this one very weak PG-rated film where Ice Cube just has kids now and is not cool at all. I would, I would much more So you're more saying the Friday films are the prequels to Are We There Yet? Oh, yeah. No, no. They go hand in hand. Like the next one's going to be Chris Tucker rolling up on the house that he built. 
and and are we done? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe it's a it's a shared universe because all right. So Craig grows up and you becomes, mean the MCU, the the Friday Cinematic Universe. The Friday, yes, the Friday Cinematic Universe. Craig grows up to become uh, the guy, and and are we there yet? But then Smokey, after realizing the errors of his ways. Decides to get his life together, joins the police force, and is teamed up with a slick-talking <laughs> martial artist from Asia, Jackie Chan. And that's how Rush Hour is tied into Friday. Now, unfortunately, Cat Williams doesn't have any iconic characters. Like, are we going to say he's his same character from First Sunday? There's not really any <laughs> Cat Williams things you can throw in there. Uh, First Sunday, not the, not the worst movie in the world. I actually... <laughs> I, I actually uh, I actually marked out for first Sunday when it, when it was first in the theaters, and then Cat Williams gave the Tommy line, uh, you know, this isn't even my church. I found this on MySpace. <laughs> Nate, I'm glad to know that when in doubt, if a song is number one in America for more than one week, we can just figure out what was happening in the world of black film, and we can get a <laughs> solid two, three minutes out of it. Uh, yes, we, we, we've got the uh, the flashback segments for the music, but then when we get stuck, you know, looking for something to talk about, we can have the flash black segment for uh, – <laughs> Such cinematic classics as uh, the Friday films or, uh, you know, uh, Masterpiece, I Got the Hookup. Uh, we, we can talk for days about that one, too. So now that we've got you all caught up on how the world at large was thinking in the year 2000, let's get into what was happening backstage at WCW at this time period because it would have a very large impact in the forward direction of the company and also on this very show we're about to talk about. And before we do, I really want to send uh, a shout-out, a thank you. I, I don't really know... Uh, uh, how we could do this without the great Death of WCW book written by Artie Reynolds and Brian Alvarez, which really gives a great blow-by-blow accounting of this time period. And Nate, I'm curious, have you read this book before? I have. I, I've read the original version and the uh, the updated edition. Great book, and, and uh, you know, obviously uh, Alvarez does good work, but also, you know, R.D. Reynolds, somebody who I, I, don't know, I don't think gets enough props for his contributions to... Uh, analyzing the foolishness of the world of professional wrestling. So yeah, definitely a, a big thank you to both those guys and both using information from that book and using a few interviews that the key individuals in the story have given over the years. Let's go ahead and discuss the crazy week that was uh, in WCW. You only got one brain. Like when you realize that your brain has been uh, damaged, um, you have to, you have to stop and you have to, you have to make that the priority of your, uh, you know, your well-being. Bret Hart is told he is unable to compete at Sold Out and must vacate the WCW title. This leaves WCW and Vince Russo with very little time to decide what to do with the show instead. I remember I just found out about Bret, and I remember we, you know, we had a lot of plans for Bret. I remember we were working towards a pay-per-view, and now I'm like, holy crap, we got to take Bret out of the equation. To make matters worse, Vince Russo is then informed that Jeff Jarrett also cannot work on the show. I get a call from Jeff's late wife, Jill. Vince's not acting the same. He's got a concussion. This is bad. So now at that point, I'm like literally within 24 hours, not only had we lost Brett, we lost Jeff. So a meeting is held to determine exactly what should be done and how they were going to fill all of this pay-per-view time. So my idea was, you know, let, let's do the old 20-man battle royal, whatever it is, and the last man in the ring is the champion. Who's the last guy that comes to the ring? MMA shoot fighter Tank Abbott. Vince Russo is then called into a meeting with Bill Bush, a Turner accountant who had been put in charge of things to hopefully turn things around from a financial standpoint. 
Bill Bush said to me, how, you know, how can you put the, the, the title on Tank Abbott? I said, Bill, tell me why I can't. Bill Bush decides to remove Vince Russo from the head writer position and instead put him on a creative council that included the likes of Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Nash, and Ed Ferrara. I, I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, I have no interest in being any part of a committee. And I got up and I walked out. So that removes Vince Russo. This should fix all the problems, right? Not quite. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad blood between many of the wrestlers and Kevin Sullivan, who would now be heading up this new creative team. It was the old structure. And I saw the same bullshit coming in. The same bullshit. And I just felt it. And it didn't feel right. I wanted out. So when Chris and Dean approached me and Perry and, and the other guys, you know, I was a shoe-in already. I mean, they didn't even have to ask me. Originally, there were 18 of us that, that all got in a room together and decided we're going to go in there and ask for a release unless things get changed. When it came down to actually going into the room and asking for that, there were 12 of us. Now, when, when we were all in the room, we all asked for our release, it boiled down to five of us. It was me, Dean, Eddie, Perry, and Shane Douglas. Now, wind of this gets to Mike Graham, who was a WCW producer at the time, and he decided to have a chat with Chris Benoit, in which he threatened to kill the man. But I said, now, now that you've tried to take my job because I'm Kevin's friend and you want to fire me, I said, I'll cut your fucking head off and put it on a stick in front of your house for all the kids to throw rocks at it. I said, I'm not the guy to mess with. These statements by Graham are so damning, it allows the protesting wrestlers to ask for an immediate release from Turner. I called Time Warner's uh, public relations department and said that they were supplying an unsafe work environment for all of us and that we were suing our wives were worried about us at work, their bosses were threatening our lives, and we made it to a big fucking deal where they had no choice but to let us go. Two weeks later, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko would all show up on Monday Night Raw. I don't envy uh, your man Bill Bush in this situation because it was really a no-win situation. Uh, all the way around, even going back to uh, the Vince Russo uh, part of the, the, the deal. But, uh, man, uh, like this is, uh, you know, we, we think politics is a is a is a dangerous game, man. It, it, politics might have uh, to take a back seat to pro wrestling in, in that respect because I can honestly empathize with with the radicals, with you know, with with the guys that want to leave. And I can also see from a business standpoint that this is a uh, messed up situation that Bill Bush and, and WCW is in. So uh, yeah, it it, uh, it it certainly shows through with the product that we're going to see for the next couple of weeks, I guess. This was this this felt like this was a house of cards situation and all it took was Brett getting this concussion and not being able to work the show to just cause everything to be tumbling down. There was no sense of order, everyone's upset, there's chaos, a lot of bad blood be- between employees, both rightly and wrongly in some cases, and it just all comes tumbling down in between last week's Nitro and this week's Nitro we're going to be talking about here. It's funny that the company goes into more of a sense of chaos after Vince Russo leaves because you would think, you know, knowing what we know about Vince Russo, that that would be the climate while he was there. So, you know, it's it's funny how tenuous 
the security in WCW was that, you know, Bret Hart, who obviously was not doing like great, like Bret Hart wasn't killing it out there. Uh, you know, cause we've, we've, uh, reviewed, uh, the shows so far with the NWO 2000. It's not like they were this white hot act, uh, but just Brett going down sets off this, this chain of events and, uh, yeah, leads to one of the biggest talent migrations in, in the history of WCW. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Uh, what, what happens here and let's go ahead. Let's stop wasting. We've talked about next Friday. We've talked about MLK Day. So let's go ahead and discuss the Nitro from January 17th, 2000. WCW Monday Nitro, the one and only Nitro, is on the air. Hi, everybody. Tony Schiavone, Mike today, Bobby the Brain Heated. You are looking, I think you can tell by the license plate, who is getting out of limousine. It's the brand new commissioner of World Championship Wrestling. Yes. A limo containing Kevin Nash arrives outside the arena in Columbus, Ohio. How do we know it contains Kevin Nash? Well, the limo has a Vanity Nash license plate on it from the state of Ohio. Nate, wasn't this car a rental? Or does Nash have 50 different cars with custom plates that he just switches <laughs> whenever he crosses straight lines? That's that's a good question because of that that was one of the first things I noticed in this segment. There were, there were two glaring things in this 15-second clip off the top of the program, brother man. One was the issue of Nash and and. Is this a rental? And, and if so, what's what's the deal with the vanity plates? The other is uh, poor Jeff Jarrett, uh, who went to shake oh, the new commissioner's I, hand. I was going to mention that because Nash emerges from the limo with the only two remaining NWO brothers because Bret Hart no longer is here. Uh, Scott Steiner and Jeff Jarrett. And as they walk in, Jarrett extends his hand towards Nash, who never sees it, and just leaves Jarrett hanging there like a fucking mark. <laughs> like, like, this almost looked like Nash was like walking to a flight and a fan came up to him and tried to act like they were buddy buddy. And, and just the look on Jarrett's face, because he's, you know, he's got those uh, orange tinted glasses, yep. the shades, and he's got his hand out for what. I know it, it couldn't have been more than four or five seconds, but it felt like 30 minutes. And he's just. And he's, He's a worker, so he's not taking that hand back. So that hand stays extended until they fade to the opening yes. uh, graphics. <laughs> so in the arena, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the campus of Ohio State University as Psychosis and Kidman are already in the ring waiting for their match. So no entrances, the bell rings, and these two get started. Tony promises to touch on everything that happened at Sold Out as soon as this match is over. You know, just deal with this flippy floppy shit, and we promise we will give you the pay-per-view results. Kidman hits a crossbody off the top, but it's only good enough for a two. Kidman misses another dive and ends up going over the top rope, so Psychosis follows up with a suicide dive. Back in the ring, Psychosis leaps off the top, but Kidman hits him midair with a drop kick to the gut. Kidman then brings out his greatest hits, a lariat, the tornado bulldog, and an inverted powerbomb. Psychosis hits Kidman with a DDT and follows it up with a guillotine lead drop, but Kidman kicks out. On commentary, Tanae puts over the gravity of this contest by mentioning that fucking Oklahoma won the cruiserweight title last night. Tanae, though, says the title change is surrounded by controversy, but he's not sure what the controversy is. Nate, how can there be a controversy if you don't know what the controversy is? Let me tell you, Brian, I love the Professor Mike Tanae. I might be, uh... I might be in the lead chair on the, on the Mike Tenay bandwagon. You know, for those that remember Review and Impact, Commissioner Tenay was something we always wanted to happen. And, and uh, so, you know, I've got no beef with the Iron Mike. But there are some issues I have with them on this episode. And uh, this, this uh, playing dumb to the, the controversy was, was the first of many uh, moments that I'll, I'll have to bring up as we go along. 
Tony then says it probably has something to do with Oklahoma's weight class. So I guess in WCW, pre-fight weigh-ins are just like an honor system or something. You just sort of like tell them what you think you might weigh so you hit the cruiserweight limits. So we got that embarrassing holdover from the Russo era while in the ring. We actually had some pretty good cruiserweight action where Psychosis goes to powerbomb Kidman who reverses it with a face jam. Kidman then gets the pin off of that maneuver. So Nate, it took us three episodes, but... I think we might have actually gotten our first pro wrestling match. I really enjoyed this match. I think it was, you know, we forget, Brian, how good of an opening staple uh, these Cruiserweight matches were. You know, they were kind of just the right amount of time to get your appetite wet for wrestling, which sometimes came, sometimes it didn't uh, <laughs> as the night went on. Uh, and I, I, I like the story that they were trying to tell. At least Tony was trying to tell, uh, having to drag Tanae and Bobby the Brain along in this one. Uh, even though Bob, yeah, didn't Bobby show up like halfway through the match? Yeah, my, Bobby's mic wasn't working, and he blamed it on the fact that it was still not working from a powerbomb spot to the announcer's table the night before. In a different city. In a different city. <laughs> um, I thought it was a good back and forth. I think there were some really cool spots. Uh, the suicide dive and the uh, leg drop especially, because uh, Psychosis, you know, it, he, he had to go a, a little bit of ways to uh, connect with that leg drop. So uh, it was good action. Uh, I think both guys came off well. Unfortunately, by the end of this show, you don't remember this match at all, uh, but I think it was a good opener. Yeah, uh, you know, they're going back to what's worked in the past, and it's very clear from the very first segment, we're going to be getting something slightly different tonight. So we go to the announcer's booth, where Tony, Bobby, and Mikey are there to update us on all the drama from Sold Out. Last night, both Hart and Jarrett were stripped of their titles. To remedy the situation... Chris Benoit and Sid Vicious faced each other for the vacant WCW world title, a match which Benoit won with the Crippler crossface. However, Sid's foot was under the rope as he tapped, calling the finish into question. To resolve the matter, Tony throws to a video statement from Arn Anderson, who officiated that match. Arn starts by saying that last night was an evening of highs and lows for WCW, an understatement for anyone who actually watched the pay-per-view. Arn confesses that he caught himself watching the match last night instead of refereeing. By being caught up in the moment, Arn didn't see Sid's leg under the rope when he tapped. So in essence, what I did is I blew it. And I'm mad enough to say so. I'm sick to my stomach. I want to puke about it. Because I took Benoit's greatest moment. Now I've taken it away from him. Sid Vicious, Chris Benoit, two of the finest athletes in the world, met for the world title. Might as well have kissed her sister on the cheek, because today we don't have one. It's just like the match never happened. Back at the broadcast booth, Tony commends Arn for his integrity before reiterating that there is no world champion at this time. While not offering any answers on the title situation, Tony does plug a State of WCW address later in the show from new commissioner Kevin Nash. Nate, do you realize that with both the U.S. and and world titles vacated, Oklahoma is currently the highest-ranked singles champion in this company. That, that, is, that is this uh, show in a nutshell right now. Um, but I, I got to tell you, Brian, going back to the Arn Anderson segment, this was maybe the textbook example of trying to make chicken salad out of chicken you-know-what. And this is actually something that I actually vividly remembered from when this episode first aired because he did it with such humility and it yes. felt so real that – it stuck with me as a kid because I felt like I was actually watching uh, a legitimate controversy because – and it was simple. It's grounded in a guy's foot was under the rope. This guy blew the call, and he feels bad about it. 
that feels like actual controversy. None of the weird bullshit. None of the controversy around Oklahoma's weight, for example. Right. And Arn is perfect for that type of promo. You know, he was never the guy with the over-the-top charisma of a Flair or a Dusty Rhodes. But if you wanted a guy that you could believe what he was saying, Arn was that guy. And even when he's out there trying to tell me that they were two of the best athletes in the world in the ring last night, when by my count there was probably only one. Uh, sorry, Sid. <laughs> uh, I-, I believed him. And, you know, when he's talking about how, as a wrestler... He, he, he was in the position he was to make that final call because he'd lost so many matches by the ref being out of position, so he overcompensated. Like, I, that, that's sound logic, and when you combine sound logic with the delivery of Arn Anderson, somebody that just comes across as earnest and, and forthright, I, I think it worked, uh, despite, you know, just the, the cluster of what had happened the night before. I thought this was a good way to kind of explain things. So here we are. We're about 10 minutes into the show, two segments, and if you excuse Kevin Nash's vanity license plate, so far this is a pretty good show. Yeah. Thankfully, for the sake of our listeners' entertainment, that ends pretty soon. In the back, the NWO approach their dressing room where the Harris boys are now standing, and they are the hired gun of the NWO. Is this the most lopsided talent exchange? You lose Bret Hart, and you get the fucking <laughs> Harris brothers. So elsewhere in the arena, Mean Gene talks to Booker T about his match with his brother Stevie Ray last night at Sold Out. Mean Gene gets us all up to speed by stating that Booker won last night by DQ after interference from Big T. Who is Big T? The former Ahmed Johnson. It's kind of weird because Ahmed Johnson is here. We recognize that it's Ahmed Johnson with, like, Nutty Professor Klump's makeup on because he's put on quite a bit of weight since we last saw him, but he's not playing Ahmed Johnson. Just so you guys get that. Booker pulls back on the mystery of Big T. You know, this sucker, he go and bring in somebody. This fool, I thought he was still locked up. You know, Big T. You know, somebody we decided a long time ago was all wrong for us, baby. Booker ends by saying that it's up to the little brother to show Stevie how it's supposed to be. I gotta say that this again for the for the second episode in a row. This might be the most intriguing angle to me. Just maybe not because of what actually transpired on the screen, but because of what they could have done with it. Because in this interview, Booker is still your baby face, but he's like he's not like the, the, there's some tinges. Like if you wanted to make him a heel, you certainly could, because you could just flip the switch from him, you know, trying to better himself to actually buying in and looking down on Stevie Ray, which is what Stevie's accusing him of. Like, it's 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 very, like, I like what he's doing. It's this cross between uh, taking it to the streets, Fatu, uh, back in the <laughs> WWE, making a difference, or, you know, a, and a uh, black Republican, which, you know, that I'm, I'm certainly a fan of. Like, I like this weird kind of respectability Booker T that, that, uh, that you know, is his character at this time. You're right. Uh, I think what WCW is able to do at its best, it would always kind of ride this razor's edge, and it would oftentimes not do this. The majority of the time, it did not make this work. It always tried to have complex angles, and there's a difference between complex and complicated. Mm-hmm. This angle is not complicated. It's very straightforward, but it is complex between some of the emotions it's trying to play, and it doesn't fully make them all work, but this is a very complex angle that it's giving you. 
very simple to understand, but well, I guess I should say it's very simple to understand until we start talking about Midnight and Big T and the way in which they they, <laughs> they go about executing it. But at the, the the bottom of it, you're right. I mean, I think both of these guys have valid gripes, but at the end of the day, it's about the actions that they took. And you could, you know, you could get on Booker for, you know, hey, you're turning your back on where you're from. You're turning your back on your brother. And Booker even had a line in here where he said, I never forgot where I came from, but I don't use it like a crutch. I don't use it as a crutch like my brother does. And even that, it could be kind of a heel line. Yeah, like I said, that, that, that one stuck out to me because it came across like, hmm. And, and, I, and you're right. It, and obviously I'm giving this angle way too much credit uh, for what it is. But it, it feels like just with the dynamic between Booker and Stevie, like uh, – Professor Xavier and Magneto, where they have yeah. a, a similar background and both of them are doing the right thing in their minds. But because of that, there, there's this impasse that they can't ever really become friends again. We then go out to the arena where the Harlem Heat uh, theme plays out the new Harlem Heat, Stevie Ray and, and Big T. Tanae says that Big T is obviously no stranger to the world of pro wrestling, while Bobby states that he saw Big T compete many years ago, but he's twice as big now. So, Nate, we touched on earlier. I'm so fucking confused. Is this Ahmed Johnson or not? <laughs> We've been told this guy's been in prison for many years. Right. He apparently grew up with Booker T and Big T, or Booker T and Stevie Ray. They decided to not continue being friends with this person and thought he was still in prison. Yet, Tanae... And Bobby Heenan are very familiar with this guy's pro wrestling work. I mean, maybe they, they are fans of, like, illegal underground fighting rings that emanated from prison. Like, are they, uh, is this pretty much that, that film Undisputed, but for, oh, for yeah. real? Yeah, there was a prison fight league that Bobby Heenan and Mike Tanay were going to on the weekends. You got, like, uh, Wesley Snipes and Michael Jai White <laughs> and, and Big T all fighting for supremacy in the bowels of a prison somewhere. But, yeah, that... That never made sense to me. Like, obviously, I, I understand they, that they probably could not use the name Ahmed Johnson uh, due to copyright and, and all that good stuff. But there was a way to acknowledge his WWE past like they've done with so many of these other guys on the roster without making it seem like this is an entirely different character. One thing is for sure, though, Ahmed is going full method with this character because he comes out wearing a fucking fanny pack and skin-tight jeans. This was not a flattering outfit for the man. Oh, man, he had the skin-tight jeans. He had the Simon Cowell tight black T-shirt. He had the double earrings and, and the, the fanny pack. Like, I, I had no idea what was going on with this ensemble. Listen, he's been in prison for several years. <laughs> this, he's rocking the style that was uh, hot on the streets back in the late 80s when he was locked up, presumably. So Stevie introduces he and Big T as the new and improved Harlem Heat. However, upon seeing his brother's promo, Stevie is willing to give Booker another chance if he brings out his sad sack fruit booty. Booker T, still using the same Harlem Heat music, comes out with Midnight. Stevie tells Booker to send his, quote, big rat Midnight to the back. As Booker sends Midnight to the back, Stevie says Midnight ain't family, and he's not even sure if she has a family. <laughs> Something in their interactions has caused Stevie Ray to believe that Midnight is an orphan. <laughs> so Booker gets in the ring, and Big T starts talking smack, sadly, off mic. So we have no idea what Ahmed Johnson was attempting to say. He was talking the entire time. The entire time. He's, <laughs> We'll never know what the mushmouth words were supposed to be, because it finally provoked Booker as Small T attacks Big T. Stevie ambushes his brother from behind, then demands referee Nick Patrick rings the bell. And just like that, we've actually got a match on our hands. 
Now, the graceful Big T, wrestling in street clothes, hits the Pearl River Plunge and instantly falls on his fucking ass. Big T follows up with a standing power slam. Booker gets, uh, gets up and ends up hitting a flying forearm, followed by an axe kick. Booker then hits his version of the rock bottom, the bookend, and then knocks Stevie off of the apron. Chekhov's fanny pack comes into play as Big T pulls out a slapjack and whacks Booker with it while Stevie is distracting the ref. Big T then collects the pinfall. Stevie gets on the mic and says this wouldn't have happened if Booker had used his street smarts, which is a valid piece of brotherly advice. I have no idea why he sent Midnight away. Midnight then comes down the aisle as Stevie and Big T exit. So, Nate, we're kind of all over the place. In the last segment, we sort of praised what this could be. Here we are seeing what it actually is. Um, no idea why we had to get this impromptu match here. I kind of feel like a beatdown maybe would have achieved uh, what we wanted to more than actually a three count and a bell ringing. And goddamn, Big T, fucking awful. <laughs> oh, man, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, there was no need for Midnight to be involved in this feud. And also, there's no need for Big T in this feud either. That... Uh, Pearl River Plunge or the, the Tiger Bomb as Mike Tanay was trying to give it more credibility than it deserved uh, just took me out of the segment because I started laughing. I had to go back and watch this about three or four times because <laughs> just the way that you could, you could tell when I'm, when Ahmed gets him up or Big T, I should use his government name when Big T starts to get him up you know this is not going to end well for either Booker or Big T and when Ahmed falls on his ass it is it is a glorious sight. I wish somebody, one of our listeners, I know you're handy with a computer, make a gift of that, because that, <laughs> that would make me happy. Uh, but the final thing I would say, Brian, is I think, again, as bad as this was, I, I'm still intrigued in Booker and Stevie. And I think that's a credit to the, uh, you know, the Huffman brothers, you know, that in the midst of all of this nonsense, that, you know, you can get, you can get engaged, you can buy into their struggle, even though, the writing around it is, is kind of falling apart at this point. So in the back, Disco Inferno is shown walking to the ring with the Mamelukes. Then, for the second week running, the biggest star on the show, Randy Savage, is shown in a mental institution selling Slim Jims. Now, in this ad, a nurse, played by his real-life girlfriend, Gorgeous George, administers a Rorschach test. Savage identifies every single ink blot as a Slim Jim. What do you see? Slim Jim. Slim Jim. Now, I'm not one to nitpick advertising here, Nate, but it's damn near impossible to confuse anything other than a straight line with a Slim Jim. <laughs> Back from break, Tony promises that the world title situation will be cleared up on Thunder because they legit needed more time to figure out a solution to this problem. Disco Inferno makes his entrance, accompanied by the Mamelukes, and attempts to dance, but the Mamelukes will not let him. His opponent, Vampiro, then comes out to a pretty good reaction, I would actually say. He, he got a nice pop here. It's clear that he's someone they're trying to build up, and the fans are getting behind him. Now, rather than allow this moment to breathe or comment on the babyface Vampiro, Tony is desperately shilling available tickets for tomorrow night's Thunder taping. Let me tell our fans in Evansville, Indiana, it's a very important Thunder coming up, being taped tomorrow night, airing on Wednesday night. It's very important for you to be there. Vampiro starts the match with a leapfrog and a spinwheel kick. He then escapes a monkey flip, followed by his own rock bottom, the hottest transitional move in WCW at this point, apparently. Disco tosses Vampiro to the floor where Big Vito and Johnny the Bull attack Vamp. Back in the ring, Disco hits a lariat. 
The crowd is now heartily chanting, Disco sucks. Vamp hits a top rope spin kick, followed by a face buster and a super kick. Disco then rolls to the floor, but the Mamelukes toss him right back in, allowing Vampiro to win with a nail in the coffin. So I guess the Mamelukes want Disco to win, but but only so much. I don't quite get what their relationship is here. I mean, there was some interference, but it was building an existing storyline. So again, by the standards that we've been given the last two weeks, I got to say this was, again, a pretty positive segment where they allowed a mid-card act they're trying to propel to get some shine. Yeah, it was a solid match. Uh, you know, both guys pretty capable in the ring. Uh, I'd forgotten uh, how unique vampiro used to be uh in terms of the rest of the roster and you're right he he got a good reaction from the crowd and that that's another thing i noticed like during a lot of these segments you know we we tend to think and look back at wcw 2000 and, and while it was the the beginning of the end if you will uh the the crowd was, was the crowds were still there and the fans for the most part were invested in what was going on at least this week so i, I think uh, it'll be interesting as we go along in this series, Brian, to see how the crowds kind of do, do they ebb and flow? Is it something that we see a constant decline or, or will there be moments where we see, you know, uh, an increase or, and then a decrease and then an increase again. So that's one thing I'm going to be looking out for as we continue this, uh, little experiment we got going. That was kind of the sad thing was this episode was pretty much at times, a very by-the-numbers wrestling show. And to see that the fans actually responded to it, it really showed that all was not lost. Fans were still showing up. They were still responding. The creative was just so shitty that it was actively pushing people away. For the, I don't know if it was just the fact that they were shell-shocked because of all the changes that had just happened. They, they, they rested on their laurels, and they put on a halfway decent wrestling show at times. And it was refreshing because less happened on this show than have happened on the last two episodes. And it was refreshing to see a mid-card babyface come out and actually get a pop and win a match and get to celebrate. And the opening match with the Cruiserweights, we're actually seeing matches occur. Now, again, that being said, uh, this was still a show that had the NWO 2000 and Kevin Nash, and that's exactly where we go to now. (laughs) Backstage in the NWO's office, Scott Steiner presents Kevin Nash with a customary gift, human flesh. Big Papa Pump brings out four women for Nash, Tiling Buck, April Hunter, Shakira, and Medasia. Very nice. Very nice. He's a great man. God, he's been working hard. It's not exactly business attire, but I mean... Kevin, I've been working hard for you. Nash, content with Steiner's sloppy seconds, asks the women to get him coffee. Steiner is upset that Kevin isn't instantly fucking them and calls this a waste of their skills. Nash retorts by calling Scott sexist, but then agrees that they should have a game of Twister. I think the only thing positive I can say about this is uh, April Hunter got another check for this. This is proto-Kevin Nash on tonight's show. He got to wear a suit, he never worked, and he just made a lot of shitty jokes that made him look like the coolest guy in the room. (laughs) Another advertisement plays for Surge. Check this out, fans. WCW and Surge are the perfect match. Be the first of your friends to collect all five Surge WCW action cans. Were you a Surge drinker in the year 2000? No, I, I was never. I was never a Surge fan. Like I've, I, uh, I don't know. I think it was the Mountain Dew. Like I've never been a fan of Mountain Dew. I, I don't know why, but I've always preferred Mellow Yellow. And I think my Mellow Yellow love. Uh, ties into a, another motion picture, and that was probably uh, watching Days of Thunder with your man Tom Cruise. <laughs> now, I will say that a lot of these beverages we're talking about now have zero appeal to me at this point, but when I was 12 and unable to uh, legally consume alcohol, Surge was the next best thing. 
We now go back into the arena where the boy band stable three count is in the ring. Band leader slash the cute one, Evan Courageous thanks all the ladies for their fan mail and reminds them, And just remember, eventually everybody goes down for the three count. Shane Helms leaves nothing to the imagination as he does a crotch chop. Now, Nate, uh, I'm curious, did you watch this on the network, as I'm sure many of our listeners did? I did, but uh, once once I found out some key information, I had to uh, go go find other means to uh, get the full appreciation of this segment, brother. Exactly. I don't know what the case was here. I thought this was an original song. I thought Jimmy Hart wrote it. I don't know if there's some issue with getting the rights, but for whatever reason, WWE has cut out the three-count performances. So I had to track it down on Daily Motion, and I sent it your way, Nate. And it's a real shame because I think this might have been one of the best moments in this show. Now, Three Count begins singing as Tiger Beat-esque images go over their performance identifying the members. However, even better than their performance was the shit that Tanae is getting during all of this. Tanae and Tony, I just they sound like two fucking high school dropouts working at a record sco- uh, store. <laughs> Accusing each other of liking boy bands. You're really getting old, you know that? Uh, no. You know what? I'm not getting old. Yes, you are. I like alternative music. Oh, you do? Mike fires back saying, You give me new wave over this bubblegum trash any day. Tanae gets so worked up that Heenan is convinced he's turning heel. He's turning heel on us. Is he, uh, is, is he opinionated? It isn't. It, it's not tough to be opinionated when you see... Uh, you know what the word is like that. Three count are cut off, though, by Crowbar and David Flair's music, which brings out the tag champions. And when you know it, these two screwballs are just so darn kooky that Daphne is wearing David's belt while Crowbar, not kidding, just throws his belt into the crowd. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what WCW PA had to go get this, but Crowbar just throws it into the crowd. <laughs> so, Nate, before we get into the actual match, let's talk about this here. One of the things that really stood out to me and WCW they they so often hung their announcers out to dry this reminds me of the entire time the NWO was the hottest fucking thing in wrestling and the announcers have to make themselves look like these dweebs who are like oh the NWO is so lame WCW for life and here you have three count which boy bands were very hot at this time period and you have the announcers bearing this and talking about how much they like alternative music. What fucking losers? These 40-year-olds telling you how lame this group is. And yeah, Three Count was supposed to be lame, but I thought them hammering it over the head and then accusing each other of liking this kind of music really just made them seem like the old dudes at the party. Yeah, I, I got to say a couple things. Uh, first, uh, when you're talking about the uh, music rights and things like that, I think uh, one of the programs I've listened to uh, recently was a, a – uh, podcast on uh, the Place to Be Nation Network, and they were talking about the history of uh, WCW music. And I think one of the issues with uh, the Jimmy Hart songs is Jimmy Hart want, wants that paper. Okay. And so anything Jimmy Hart, even though, you know, they, you you think that they would have the rights to it, Jimmy, Jimmy, I guess Jimmy Hart hadn't signed over those uh, those rights yet, uh, or, or he's holding out for more money. So that's why we're going to get uh, segments that don't sound right or, or segments that are clipped all together. Yeah, I guess they were maybe just licensing the tracks rather rather than WCW just owning them outright. Uh, you know, hey, Jimmy Hart's a, a OG, an original gentry. He's he's not gonna play that. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the things that I hated, and you mentioned it, was the announcing on this because music's not Mike Tanay. Not 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 a good look. Speaking of not a good look. Crowbar and David get on the apron and are met with drop kicks from three count. With the champs on the floor, Shannon Moore and Shane Helms hit dives to their opponents. Standards and practices, remember them, we haven't seen them in a little bit, 
come out with Miss Hancock, the announcers wonder why standards and practices could be out here. And Tanae pipes up, maybe they appreciate good music. Fuck Tanae. <laughs> Go get a job at Sam Goody or something. Evan Courageous is oh, on the Oh, man, floor. Sam Goody. So you, st- you started something out, Brian, man. Now, now, <laughs> now I'm going to turn into music snob Mike today. Sam Goody was so great. Do they even exist anymore? No, no, not at all. But who, who knows? You might go to the FYE in your mall and find Mike Tanay restocking the shelves this weekend. <laughs> Evan Courageous is on the floor stalking Daphne. In the ring, Crowbar hits a split-legged gourd buster. Jealous lover David Flair runs to the floor and crowbars Evan on the floor with, an, with a crowbar, not the wrestler crowbar. It gets confusing. Back in the ring, the wrestler crowbar catches Helms with an inverted DDT for the pin. I'd like to uh, add more to this, Brian, but now I'm just thinking about Sam Goody and the warehouse oh, warehouse music when I used to live out in San Diego. And- well, did you, have a, did you have a media play? Because media play was my big uh, hookup. No, we didn't have media play. Uh, let's see. When I, when I lived on the East Coast, when I lived in Virginia, uh, it was Sam Goody. But then we moved out west. It was warehouse music. The media play in my neighborhood would allow you to trade in old CDs, used CDs. Uh, and I guess to show my the way I was maturing as an individual, uh, I traded in a lot of my older boy band CDs at this time so I could get the brand new Uncle Cracker CD at media play. Oh, did that CD uh, have the X-Factor theme on it? Oh, I was dealing with the X-Factor. Yo, you dealing with the X-Factor. I got everything I ever wanted, and I'll never get that back. Oh, I know you hated that factor, but you ain't gotta look at me like that. I said you ain't gotta look at me like that. Back in the NWO office, the boys are receiving message from their, I don't know, let's call them escorts. As Nash suggests, getting rid of the old age outlaws. We gotta get rid of these old age, these old ugh, old age outlaws. Back in the arena, wrestling orchestra conductor the Maestro enters, accompanied by Symphony. Symphony you might recognize as Ryan Shamrock in the WWF. So the man who is nearly world champion, Take Abbott, comes out to a pretty decent pop at this point. Now during Tank's entrance, we are shown images of his victory over Jerry Flynn. It sold out last night. The bell rings, and Tank instantly punches Maestro in the back of the head. The ref then calls for the bell, and the match is over in less than 10 seconds. Now, the Maestro just fell out, found out, and fell out about the devastating person power. This was a, well, scheduled to be a shoot-fighting rules match, winning by knockout or submission only, and that was a knockout. So rather than allow Tank's dominant performance to be highlighted, to be the highlight of the segment, Norman Smiley's music hits and out comes the master of the big wiggle in Ohio Buckeyes gear. Norm dares Tank to come get some. Norman is walking backwards and he bumps into Ming, who has suddenly appeared. Ming then stares down Abbott while Norman pulls him back. Nate, I thought we were maybe going to, for the first time, see Tank Abbott's being booked strongly in terms of how we I, I like the idea of him coming out and just punching out these dumb wrestling characters like here's this wrestling gimmick he comes out with the lawrence welk bubbles and this gets punched in the back of the fucking head that was good however we kind of we had to go a step further and i get that we're building to this new feud May, honestly this was maybe the only segment on tonight's show where i felt like they're just trying to compress and force so many things so that you leave not really remembering anything yeah, there's a couple things with this, Brian. I think, like, I like the idea that Tank Abbott, you know, could come out and be almost like the WCW 2000 version of 911 and ECW. You know, just come out and, and knock out some idiot and, and, you know, bing bang, he's out of there. But I didn't like the, like, the actual knockout I felt didn't, didn't really work for me. 
in part because I think I, I I don't know if I put it more on Tank or if it was more on uh, the Maestro, but for whatever reason, it just didn't look as vicious as it should have. Uh, particularly on a, on a wrestling show where we see, you know, guys go through tables and we see, you know, guys getting hit with crowbars. You know, it, if you're going to get knocked out by one punch and I'm going to believe that this dude is a legitimate badass, the punch should look vicious. Uh, and it just didn't look vicious enough for me. Uh, but yeah, in, in terms of overbooking, I think the, we, we could have done without Ming at least this week. You know, you could have had him, you know, knock out Jerry Flynn at the pay-per-view, then come out here and knock out Maestro. And maybe the week after that, knock out, you know, some other random person. Uh, uh, and then we build up to Ming. But to have Ming out there with Norman Smiley looking like a, a wrestling version of Warren Moon in, in that Ohio State jersey, uh, it, it was all a little too much. So in the back, a long line of wrestlers are shown walking to the ring. Elsewhere, the NWO leave their locker room as well. Yeah, yeah, watch yourself. What's going on now? Well, you see all the wrestlers heading to the arena. Everyone is coming out because, fans, it's coming up. Guys, In the arena, the locker room empties out into the ring. When WWE does a thing like this, they're very cautious of who's standing in the middle, who gets to come out first. You usually want a leader in the locker room to be the first person the crowd sees. WCW, on the other hand, sends out the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea first. <laughs> Apparently, he is the locker room general at this point in WCW. Now, Nate, did it strike you as weird that he was the first guy to walk through the uh, the revolving W's there on the stage? And I was I was distracted by this procession, man. And and yes, we will save our Prince Iakea takes for later because we, we might have some differences of opinion down the line. But this felt very much like some weird pro wrestling equivalent to like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade <laughs> where there's no rhyme or reason to which float comes next. It's like, hey, here's the uh, Walt Disney Emperor's New Groove float. Oh, wait a minute. Here comes underdog kids. Oh, here's the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like none of those things go together. Uh, and so with this one, like you got Prince I.K. coming out, followed by favorite of uh, the show, Lash LaRue. Uh, you got Hoover 2 Guerrero walking by, Tank Abbott. Hey, there's Chavo Guerrero. Like, nobody's coming out in a what, what seems to be a semblance of order. Like, even the factions are coming out kind of staggered. Like, uh, we've got two guys from Three Count coming out, and then Shane Helms, like, follows two or three people later. Like, they were just kind of all hanging out backstage, and some stagehand was like, all right, go. And everybody just walked out. Ever the worker, Jim Duggan, he stops on the ramp with his two by four and just poses and gets like this big pop. <laughs> this reminded me of like during the, uh, remember during the Republican debates, that time when Ben Carson just didn't walk out? Right, right, right. <laughs> so then Donald Trump stood next to him and then he wouldn't walk out because they wanted to be the ones to come out last. Like that's what this, and, but you had like Jeb Bush in the background like hanging out. You had people behind Jim Duggan being like, dude, we got to get this segment going on. What the fuck are you doing yeah, you standing got, uh, out there? Ahmed Johnson and uh, Stevie Ray just kind of looking at him like, what, what is he doing? Like, and, and Duggan is just soaking up the moment. I was hoping that uh, Big T would follow his lead and he would just come out and just like take his fanny pack off and troll it over his head for some sort of pop. <laughs> now, at this point, a MIDI version of Hail to the Chief plays and out comes Kevin Nash and the Harris boys, along with Jeff Jarrett. Hail to the chief rings. Should we stand up? I'm standing. Okay, let's stand. Kevin Nash's first act as commissioner is to call everyone in the ring a, quote, sea of underachievers. Hmm. He then lists off his goals for everyone in the ring. 
He'd like to give Mike Tanay a personality, Brian Knobs a brain, Tank Abbott a heart, and Norman Smiley courage. Now, of course, this was just all leading to a cute reference from Nash. Wait a second. I sound like Oz up here. <laughs> Which is worse, Nate, the fact that he's stopping these promos to make shitty references or that they're just shitty references to himself? <laughs> well, that's not the only reference to a former Nash character that we get on this show. Nope. Later, later he'll dig another one in there. And, and this is where I started to just look at this segment, Brian. And, you know, there's a lot of opinions about Kevin Nash. And I think... This segment is an encapsulation of a couple of those. Like, if you just look at the way Nash looks, and uh, Ann Coulter, hairstyle aside, like, <laughs> Nash Nash looks like a star. Like, it, it, yeah. it makes sense that this guy would be somebody that if I'm in charge of a wrestling company, just by looks alone, this would be somebody I want to feature. But once he starts talking, the segment becomes all about him, and not just all about him in a way that, makes sense in the storyline because he's the commissioner, but in a way that, you know, he's making himself and, and, and some of the guys in the back laugh because he's making these cute little jokes. And it, it's like, yeah, there's, there's a reason why this is not going to work long term. Nash says an injustice was done last night, and then he calls Jeff Jarrett over. Nash blasts Terry Funk for stripping Jeff Jarrett of the U.S. title and awards the belt back to him. Here's your belt. Hey, champ. Thank you very much for your hard work and the continued hard work you'll give, Mike. Hold on, you're right. Brothers don't shake. Brothers hug. There was a line in this that actually made me chuckle. What was that? Uh, when when uh, Jarrett goes to shake Kevin Nash's hand, and then Nash is like, come on. Brothers don't shake. Brothers hug. That's a, It's a Tommy Boy reference, and it's actually a line that I used at the time, you know, because... Uh, Obviously, for the listeners, they know I have a penchant for calling people brother. And so whenever I would leave somebody, you know, this didn't happen to everybody because everybody can't get a hug from the Godfather. But, you know, know, like me and one of my high school buddies, you know, getting ready to shake hands and like, hey, brothers don't shake. Brothers got a hug. So at least this part of the Nash promo made me smile. So, So he's got that going for him. Hey, you know what? Maybe this actually ties up the, the thread from the very opening segment. Maybe that's why he left Jarrett ha- uh, hanging on oh, that handshake. Wow. Oh, that, that, is a deep, that is a deep cut. Like, yes. Because sta- <laughs> stablemates don't shake. Stablemates <laughs> hug. Long-term booking at its finest. So Nash now says there's going to be a few new rules. From now on, mandatory exams will be held each and every match including rectal exams. He tells the entire roster to go report to Dr. Jellyfingers backstage. We then cut to Sid in the back, who's sitting watching on a monitor. So he's he's too big to, uh, to be a part of the segment. However, he is not too big to enjoy the refreshing taste of Surge as he's holding a can. Did you uh, happen to notice, was he holding the Sid Vicious can of Surge? I don't think it was an action can. I could only see the label. Uh, that would have been too meta if he was drinking out of his own Surge can. <laughs> Nash's second rule is that all talent will share the same locker room, and when Nash is around, they will look to the ground and refer to him as Lord Master. Rule number three, he doesn't want anyone to ask about the world title, most likely because the bookers haven't actually figured out what they're doing with it yet. Rule number four, illegal substances will no longer be allowed in the locker room. Nash says he's going to confiscate every vial of Viagra that they find. Nash then says that Luger is the one with the Viagra. They then cut to Lex Luger, 
who had the greatest look of cartoonish embarrassment on his face. Clearly, he did not know they're going to do this. This monster heel that we're building up right now, Lex Luger, just has to sort of like do this like weird fucking uh, like red skeleton look on his face. <laughs> fucking, I I got to tell you though, this might have been the best selling of Lex Luger's career was his reaction to being <laughs> caught with boner pills. Nash says that Buff and DDP had a hell of a match last night. I like this soap opera stuff, but guys, I gotta know. Buff, I got to know. You doing Kim or what? Now, unfortunately, DDP and Buff were deemed too important for this segment, so neither of them were actually in the ring as the camera's searching for a reaction shot from these guys, and Nash is sort of like peering around the ring hoping to find them. Neither guy came out for this segment. I guess they made this segment completely optional. If you didn't feel like going out, fuck it. Nash then declares... Buff Bagwell versus DDP in tonight's main event with Kimberly as the special referee. Nash says he's picked out a special referee's uniform just for Kimberly before sticking his tongue out. The crowd is drowning out Nash with Goldberg chants. You keep that up and I'll fire the son of a bitch! I couldn't tell if this was a Nitro in 2000 or a Raw in 2017. Nash ends by declaring that the NWO is now running the show and that, quote, you may see heroes in the ring, but on this stage tonight, you're witnessing gods. Nate, I am so angry that I enjoyed Kevin Nash as a child. <laughs> Man, this was, uh, this was terrible. Like, I know they were in Buffalo on the last episode, but they're lucky that this episode didn't take place in Harlem because uh <laughs> if, if Nash was up at the Apollo he might have gotten to the uh Lex Luger joke but I, I don't even think he would have got that far before Sandman came in and, and dragged him off the stage because this was there were a couple cute lines but for the most part a it didn't really entertain me and b maybe even worse than that it made your roster look bad and it like, I think, I'm trying to think, did anybody in the ring come across looking good? I Like, Lex Luger was diminished, Tank Abbott was diminished, uh, like, even Mike Tanay got sideswiped. You know, so, yeah, this was a segment that I don't think accomplished whatever it was uh, setting out to achieve unless that goal was to put Kevin Nash over. Everything Nash said was unscripted. He just, maybe they gave him the bullet points of the rules he needed to have, but probably not. Like, I don't see anyone else high-fiving him over the Dr. Jellyfingers line or wanting to do Viagra jokes. This was just, you know, this was just a, a time period where clearly no one was steering the ship. No one was telling anyone no. And we're saying, we're seed up and down the show. Some of this show was really good wrestling. When we just sent two workers out there to have a match, they could do it. They could put together a decent match and entertain this crowd. But that same sort of creative freedom was then extended to someone like Kevin Nash who comes out here and you give him the tools to bury the entire roster. That's exactly what he's going to do. We then go to the NWO office where Kimberly Page comes in and Nash gives her a referee shirt. Before Kim leaves, Kevin asks her if Buff or Page was better. In the arena, the Varsity Club, Mike Rotunda and Rick Steiner enter without Kevin Sullivan, who I'm sure was much busier backstage this evening. Mike Rotunda starts a promo with his now trademark... 
How y'all doing, losers? <laughs> how y'all doing, losers? Seeing how well Jarrett's football promos went over last week, Mike Rotunda and Steiner then run down the Ohio State football team. Their opponents for the night are New Japan's Masahiro Chono and Super J, who is Jeff Farmer, the former NWO Sting. Tanae mentions Chono's past in the NWO Japan. The match starts with all four men brawling around the ring. As Rotunda works over Super J, the camera cuts to a close-up of Lei Miao's breasts. Chono jumps off the top, but Steiner catches him with a pretty impressive belly-to-belly suplex. Super J then runs in, but he's greeted with the Steiner line. The finish comes when Rotunda rolls up Chono in a small package, but the ref is distracted by Rick on the floor. Now, Super J was supposed to run in and sort of reverse the small package uh, so that Chono's in on top, but he missed his cue. So Chono and Rotunda are just sort of like hanging out in a small package position for like 15 <laughs> seconds, just waiting for Super J to come to his spot. Eventually, Super J comes in, slightly pivots their shoulders a little bit so that Chono's on top. And look at Super J run Chono over. Chono's going to pin my After the match, Kevin Sullivan books his buddies to get their heat back by beating down on Chono. Now, third time tonight, Nate, we had an actual wrestling match. It was pretty uninspired. It was a by-the-numbers heavyweight tag team match. But this was something, when I go back and I watch 98 Nitros, it was these sort of matches were a real staple that I liked, was that we had all of these workers from all around the world. We got these Japanese guys. We got these, uh, you know, AWA guys. Earlier, we had these cruiserweights. We had these luchadors. We're going to bring all these people with styles from around the world, and we're actually going to allow them to work these styles now it might not always be the best looking and sometimes the crowd doesn't necessarily know what's going on but from a purely kind of aesthetic standpoint that's very intriguing to watch these sort of matchups versus on wwe now we have all these talents from all around the world but they're being brought together and asked to wrestle the exact same style so that's that's sort of frustrating and here i at least like the artistic uh, maybe I'm getting too much credit, but the artistic exhibition of all these different global styles on one show, and they're actually being allowed to perform the way they've been trained uh, traditionally. Yeah, I always like it when a, a promotion allows itself to feel bigger than, than it might actually be. And this certainly did that. And it's funny because during the Nash segment, uh, shocker folks, I started to get a little bit bored. Uh, <laughs> so I went ahead on the little... A navigation bar at the bottom to see what was coming up next. And it was like Varsity Club versus Team 2000. And at first, I'm thinking, is this Techno Team 2000? Are we going <laughs> to get some Eric Watts on this episode? Uh, but then when it comes up, it's it's actually, you know, the Team 2000 from Japan. And it's uh, Chono. And I'm like, wow, I did not know Masa Chono was on this show. And so I got really excited. Uh, but then we actually get to the match. And it was like my excitement was not... Uh, rewarded because it kind of felt like if if somebody gave me tickets right now said hey nate you got front row tickets to see one of your favorite r&b singers ever i'm like oh man this is gonna be great and it turns out to be montel jordan in 2017 <laughs> no shade on montel jordan but it, it's, it's a little bit past your prime to be up there talking you gotta get your groove on like no no don't don't get your groove on at all montel and, and that's how i felt with this match it's like chono it was good to see him but I didn't really need to see him or Jeff Farmer wrestling in this match, particularly against Steiner and Rotunda. Like, this match would have been awesome eight years ago, or yeah. eight years prior to this. But at this point, it was just kind of like there. Uh, but, you know, all, all four guys worked hard. 
or as hard as they could at this point in their careers. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly wasn't the worst thing that we saw on the show uh, this week. Back from break, Sid enters to a very forgettable WWE Network-themed dub, another one of these victims of the Jimmy Hart era. Now, out with the old, in with the new, we are informed that Sid is on the cover of the latest WCW magazine. (laughs) There you go, Nate. NWO 2000 is officially done. We are now in the Sid Vicious era. A sign in the crowd reads, Sid for President, a joke in 2000, but a desirable alternative in 2017. His opponent, the late Wall, comes out in a suit and tie. Sid wastes no time laying into the wall with a big boot. These two quickly make their way to the floor, where Sid lands multiple chair shots on his opponent, but does not get DQ'd. This match is then suddenly interrupted as we cut to the NWO's office, where a lackadaisical Kevin Nash is passively chatting with Disco and the Mamelukes. You know how typically when we cut from a match to something in the back, like it's it's, it's urgent, we're in the middle of something? Nash is just fucking chilling with these guys. What's up? Disco, your hair looks very nice. Nash asks if they know Vinny Vegas. Another obvious reference to one of Kevin Nash's old fucking gimmicks. I'm glad we interrupted this match to go to this. (laughs) Big Vito apparently doesn't get the reference, though, and says, yeah, he lives on 33rd and 3rd. Kevin Nash then sends the three men to the ring so they can attack Sid. Back in the ring, Sid chokeslams the wall and pins him. Now, normally I would complain about missing an entire match for a lame Kevin Nash segment, but when that match is Sid versus The Wall, I'm fine that we didn't see any of this at all, and we went backstage. So Johnny the Bull then appears from behind Sid, but he is quickly hit with a powerbomb. Disco then sends in Vito, who is greeted by a powerbomb as well. Disco teases Giddy in the ring, but decides to run to the back instead. Nate, say what you will about Sid Vicious and The Wall. I think they actually booked this as best they can. They never had to do any actual wrestling. They're brawling around the ring. When they actually got in the ring, we then cut to something else, so we didn't even see it. We can complain that, yeah, the wall got a big win last night, and this might not have been the best follow-up. But overall, this was a solid babyface segment where the guy who's supposed to be your big monster babyface laid out a couple of uh, mid-card heels. So again, I can't really complain. This made sense on paper. Yeah, there's a lot going on here, Brian. I mean, you've you got the, uh, the, the great Sid wall match. And, and yes, you can quibble about whether the wall should have been put in this position. Uh, coming off of the pay-per-view the night before. Uh, but you've also got that great backstage segment where uh, Kevin Nash name drops Vinny Vegas and also asks for the Mama Lukes to bring back some grinders yep. when uh, when they return from beating up Sid Vicious. Uh, we get the run-in. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of stuff. But after your your thought of Sid Vicious as president, that that's where my mind went this entire segment because <laughs> now I'm just thinking of Sid like cutting a promo on Putin like in that Sid Vicious style where first he's yelling at Vladimir Putin because he's angry, but then he gets really quiet. You want to hack me, Putin? I'm the master and the ruler of the world. Like now, yes, I want Sid Vicious 2020. Let's get it done. Though to be fair, I feel like Trump kind of has the same promo style. <laughs> He kind of does. Yeah, he'll, he'll modulate. He'll you know he'll go high. He'll go low. He gets very big. It's very big. It's very big. And listen, people, we got this thing. He's like, it's very whispery. And he's like, he, I'm gonna scare you with something. But then listen to this other thing I got going on right here for you guys. Maybe, maybe Trump studied Sid Vicious. Maybe maybe that's how he. Uh, that's what he was doing instead of debate prep. Now we gave. The Macho Man segment, a little bit of shine. I say segment. It was a commercial. We're now going to give another commercial some much-needed attention. 
An ad for the WCW Visa card plays, yes. and Nate Milton automatically gave this episode 10 out of 10 as it featured Sting. Sting, in full makeup, is at an art gallery, and he asks to buy a pop art painting of himself. <laughs> a snooty art dealer refuses to sell it to him. However, Sting says that money is no object because he has a WCW credit card, which might as well have been this company's budget strategy in 2000. Back, more like it. No, no, this piece is not for sale. Money is no object. I've got the power of the card. Get the power of the all-new official WCW MasterCard. Nate, there was so much to die. Even if we don't get into just the comedy of a WCW <laughs> credit card, the concept of this commercial that Sting, in full Sting attire and makeup, is at an art gallery that for some reason has pop art of Sting. <laughs> no one, is, no one is, is losing their mind here. He then tries to buy this picture of himself, and some snooty art dealer <laughs> refuses to... <laughs> what? what was the basic world this was existing in? <laughs> Oh, obviously this is one of the highlights of the episode for me, Brian. Because this one is- of Nate, don't lie to the people. This was your highlight. This is. <laughs> I would not be surprised if you tell me you didn't watch the rest of the episode. You turned it off right here, so you could call this the main event. I mean, I, I did go back and watch this twice. <laughs> I, I had to go back and rewatch it because uh, not only was this our first true appearance of Sting, the other thing about this commercial, Brian, which may or may not come as a surprise to you. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be a shocking revelation on the level of oh, no. my, fr- my being a black Republican. I think I know where this is going to go. But I, I once was uh, a cardholder uh, of the WCW credit card. Was it a Sting card? It was not because they were uh, out of the Sting logo. Like I, 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 I marched wanted, out of that bank. I wanted Sting, but they didn't have Sting. So I had. they were like, uh, you know, we can offer you DDP. I don't want no damn DDP in my wallet. So I just went with the uh, WCW logo card. Oh, man. I would have gone with the buff one. Uh, also, <laughs> sign of the times, we physically went to a bank to get a card. <laughs> I don't know I don't know which was worse, though. The, uh, the booking uh, of the Kevin Nash segment or the interest rate on his credit card. Because, yeah, it was not, looking back, it was not a wise investment. When you would make a purchase and hand them a WCW credit card, would they even bother swiping it, or would they just deny it, uh, just out of? <laughs> so you, you forget, Brian. I like I, I'm I'm in Virginia, so we're we're still you know it's post the height of the Monday Night Wars, but it's still WCW country. So, so I, I I don't get I didn't get as many looks as I probably would have gotten in California or New York or somewhere that wasn't yep. in the uh, Mid Atlantic. But uh, yeah, back at the time. Uh, I'd, I'd break out my black card with the WCW logo on it, and and I felt like uh you know I felt like uh, I was a big deal. You probably you could have worn your your NWO 2000 shirt to a job interview at this time period. It was a different world we lived in. I, I would have, and I would have rented a limo with with vanity license plates and and <laughs> rolled up to the job. <laughs> Who's driving that limousine? I don't know, but the license plate says Nate. So let's check our schedule. Do we have a Nate coming in? They they send Arn Anderson out to come get me. <laughs> So back out in the arena, Scott Steiner enters. For some reason, the Ohio Buckeyes mascot, I guess, was entertaining them during the the break. And Scott Steiner comes out and just beats the shit out of him. Oh, it was amazing because he just – you see the Buckeye, like, because we come back. I'm already on a high, Brian, after that credit card commercial. And we see the Buckeye doing his little song and dance, shuck and jive routine. And Steiner just comes in and blasts him from behind. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm here for this Scott Steiner because he is, uh, not only does he hit the Ohio State mascot, but he's rocking the, uh, crisp Michigan jersey. So I, I dug it. Top-notch heel work. So even though his brother Rick Steiner had essentially already cut these exact same promos <laughs> a segment ago when he came out, Scott Steiner just spends five minutes burying the Ohio State football team. He comes out with Medeja and a Michigan State cheerleader. Now, I guess he assumed that everyone watching at home is also from the Buckeye State because he just runs down the quality of the state's women. He says that when he was on Michigan State's football team, they used to come to Ohio Brian, and the players Brian. would— what I'm, I'm gonna save you from the uh, I'm gonna save you from the fact checking thread. It, it's Michigan. What did I just say? Michigan State. They're, they're two different uh, two different schools. One is the Spartans in the green and gold. That's Michigan or the green and white. That is uh, Michigan State. And the uh, Wolverines uh, are the uh, blue and maize. I believe uh, you know, even though it's blue and yellow, but it's it's maize because they want to be fancy. And that that's where Scott Steiner attended. Well, thank you very much for setting me straight. I appreciate it. However, regardless of state alliances. <laughs> Steiner doesn't care what university you went to because he flat out says beating Ohio State was easy, just like your women. He then starts to sing the Umish uh, fight song before attacking a fan at ringside. Hostile crowd here in Columbus. Well, he's revving them up. He's getting them all worked up. Oh God! He's getting a fight with a fan. Security quickly. Oh my God! Clearly a plant, but still, things went a little too far as the plant's nose gets busted open and security has to drag him away from Scott Steiner to keep him safe. We then cut abruptly to Lex Luger and Miss Elizabeth walking to the ring. Clearly him attacking the fan was planned, but I liked that this all had an air of, of chaos to it. It was treated as though this were real. Uh, we never got a replay of it because you wouldn't replay it in this situation. We abruptly cut away. Uh, I thought that this was one of the few times where cutting away from a thing and not letting it breathe actually made it feel more real. So cut out all the bullshit, like, <laughs> pep rally stuff at the beginning of the segment. I thought this ended well. It was a good way to sell Scott Steiner as this unhinged maniac while he's still unable to actually do any physical competition in the ring because he is still injured. I think one thing I've, I've already s discovered that I like about WCW 2000 is they are not uh, afraid to play the hometown team troll card. Like, we saw it on the episode in Buffalo. Nate, it's the only card they have in their deck. <laughs> Don't say not afraid to play it. That's the suit. They're, they went down to the store and they bought the local town heat commemorative set. And each <laughs> each playing card has a different cheap trick you can throw on the local crowd. Like, you get an ace and it's like, oh, insult the varsity in Atlanta. It's just like all very basic, localized. Like, that's the thing. They would have been a great indie promotion. But if you're sitting at home in uh, Virginia watching this, you don't have any connection to the, the quality of women in Ohio. <laughs> you don't know about my private life, Brian, man. Oh, good point. Sorry. I, I don't, <laughs> you could have been on the early days of AIM having a lot of uh, <laughs> different area codes. You know, that was, that was a big song at the time. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was, I was the king of Black Planet back in the day, Brian, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I... I dug the beginning of the segment and I dug the ending with the uh, Ohio State fan. Everything in the middle was just kind of there. It was boilerplate, heel 101. But I I like Scott Steiner. Again, this is kind of going back to my comments about Stevie Ray. Like, if you just sit and listen to Scott Steiner, technically it's not a good promo, but there's something there. And I think 
that having him be this unhinged wild man, it fit him at the time and, and it still holds up today. Uh, maybe not as, as well as it did back then, but compared to some of the other acts on the show, which definitely feel dated, Scott Steiner still feels, this still feels kind of rel- relevant. And he hadn't lost his mind yet. He's not cutting promos about math and cheeseburgers. He's <laughs> still like getting heat and talking about things that have some bearing on reality. Out next, Lex Luger in his uh, Total Package attire. It, sh- it should be counted that Lex Luger is now going just by the name Total Package. He enters the arena. There's the Total Package! What a body! Lex's pose down is interrupted by his opponent for the night, Bam Bam Bigelow. As Bam comes down, we are shown a recap of the most recent Thunder, where Lex, in his Sting makeup, attacked Bigelow with a bat. This is a match that really would have fit comfortably at any WWF house show in 1992. Luger works over Bam Bam with these incredibly weak kicks, and they're just not even close to connecting. On commentary, the announcers more or less tell you that Sting will be returning next week at the Staples Center. They're saying, hey, he's going to be back by the end of the month. He lives in the California area. Sting's more or less going to be on the show next week. Bigelow goes to the top rope and delivers a diving headbutt. Liz is then on the apron, distracting the referee, allowing Chris Champagne Canyon to interfere. Some dude named Mr. Biggs, who I'm guessing is Canyon's manager, hands Lex a bottle of champagne. The package promptly breaks the bottle over Bam Bam's head. Referee Charles Robinson turns around, ignores the fact that the ring is now completely covered in glass, and counts the three count. In the ring, a sign that Vince Russo was no longer with the show, they actually gave us a replay. They recapped the finish, showed us how it went down. This was kind of a complicated finish, so it was good that the announcers stopped, showed us who handed who the bottle when, what happened. And this wasn't great, Nate. This was actually a really shitty match, but I will say it was better than anything on last week's show. Yeah, it, it, it accomplished what it, what it set out to do, which was set up uh, you know, the Canyon and Bigelow feud to continue that. Uh, and... I had a couple thoughts during this match, Brian. I, I the first thought was uh, watching Luger out there with his little tearaway getup, like damn, let's Luger's cock diesel. <laughs> and then that got me thinking because I haven't used that phrase in a long time, so I had to go and, and like Google the origins of the phrase cock diesel because it's something that uh, you know I, I used to say all the time, like in the <laughs> mid '90s and the early 2000s. Now I don't, I don't like I might say diesel or I might say swole or that guy's jacked or that guy's ripped, but I just. I've never said cock diesel. I mean, I haven't said cock diesel in a long time. So shout out to Lex Luger for bringing that word back into my vernacular. Uh, uh, the other thing that got me hyped was Tony Schiavone telling us again, like you mentioned, that the uh, next night show is going to be in L.A. at the Staples Center. Uh, so not only will we probably see Sting, but maybe we'll get a shot of Marcus Vanderberg or Chris from L.A. in the audience. If they were at that show. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping we get one of those. Uh, then the last thing though, you talked about Mr. Biggs. I laughed because I forgot Mr. Biggs was still in WCW this time. Yeah, give us a little backstory on Mr. Biggs. Yeah, for those that, that don't know who Mr. Biggs is, he used to be Clarence Mason in the WWE. Yes. And he, you know, was this kind of, I guess, Johnny Cochran light kind of a figure. Uh, and he carried the same gimmick over to WCW. And right now he's with, uh, Champagne Chris Canyon, but I think pretty soon he's going to align with uh, Harlem Heat. He sure will. 
Cause, cause yeah, yeah, you, 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 you can't wait to see what type of legal litigation goes down with Harlem Heat, uh, that they would need the services of one Mr. Biggs, uh, but yeah, it, Listen, look at Big T's track records. It's only a matter of time. They're just prepping up. Back to jail. <laughs> keeping someone on retainer. Again, I think you talked about this uh, either last episode or the one before, where this was a time where anybody with a WWE name was getting a look. And Mr. Biggs, a.k.a. Clarence Mason, is, is another sign of that because uh, no shade on him. Like, I, I don't know this guy. Like, he could be the greatest guy in the world, fun to be around, locker room influence, but... I didn't see the value of him uh, with uh, Canyon, and I certainly didn't see the value of him with Harlem Heat, which we'll see in a little while. In the back, DDP, Buff Bagwell, and Kimberly Page are shown walking to the ring separately. We then get a totally pointless cutaway to the NWO watching television. I don't know why we needed to see this, but thankfully it would be the last time we'd see the NWO tonight. (laughs) Back in the arena, Kimberly is the first one out, and she actually got Pyro. The special guest referee got pyro. You d- just put it on the WCW credit card, right? DDP is another victim of the WWE network removing his classic theme. Self-high five. Straight up ripoff of Smells Like Teen Spirit. There's no way around it. They, they couldn't play it anymore. But you really lose the massive pops that this guy was getting at the time from these crowds, they just don't translate. No, not at all. And it's, it's one thing that, that always takes me out of the match, at least for a little bit, you know, because coming down to the ring, you've got DDP and it doesn't even look normal. Like it looks like a, if you're playing a video game and you intentionally switched out somebody's interest music, right? Just, to, just for a laugh, you know, but this isn't funny. It, it didn't make me laugh at all. It just made me sad because we didn't get, you know, self-high five. Thankfully, Buff Bagwell was not struck by the same WWE music curse as he comes out with his trademark Buff Bagwell WCW theme song. Nate, I think Buff Bagwell's theme song is the best WCW theme song with lyrics that was ever written. Wow. What do you think? Because, like, yeah, you got the Sting Crow thing. You got Goldberg. You got the NWO. But... A song with lyrics, I think Buff Bagwell's is the best from the WCW Nitro era. Okay, see, so from the Nitro era, because that cuts out like everything that was on the Slam Jam record. Well, because here's the thing. If we open it up to uh, pre-Nitro, American Male still wins. Yeah, so got, Buff, got, Buff's got, holding it down males, either way. Uh, you got American Males. You got uh, Everybody Here Comes to Cold Scorpio. Yep. Uh, you got Man Called Sting. Uh, and perhaps my favorite from Slam Jam, Ricky Steamboat. inspire me to cheer for you i mean <laughs> glad that you have morals dragon but that doesn't get me hyped uh but in terms of lyrics yeah i think at this at this point in time you might be right buff buff might be the be the leader in the clubhouse At the beginning of this match, these two trade shots back and forth after DDP spits in Buff's face. DDP uh, follows up with a shoulder block and a spinning urinagi. Kim is slow to get down for the count, and she seems a bit reluctant, so we're starting to sell that we don't know whose side Kim is on here. A one only, and 
little jawn going on that time. Of course, she was a little slow to get down and make the did, count. Did you think so, too? It looked like there was just a bit of hesitation. These two men then roll out onto the floor and brawl into the crowd. Rather than go into the crowd, Kimberly just stays in the ring and watches from a distance. DDP grabs a fan's crutch and breaks it over Buff's back, causing Heenan to joke, Someone's gonna be hopping home tonight! Tony then suggests that maybe uh, Kim just likes to be the center of attention as Buff blasts Paige with a trash can. The two men then make their way back in the ring. Buff drops DDP on the turnbuckle and both men then collapse on the mat. Kimberly looks down at both men as the announcers attempt to read her body language. You know, I still don't get a feeling. No body language from Kimberly at all. Mike, there's always body language from Kimberly. Buff chokes DDP before flirting with Kim. This allows Paige to get on offense and crotch Bagwell around the ring post. Paige goes for a diamond cutter, but Buff holds on to the top rope to block it. Buff hits a double-arm DDT and goes for a cover. Kim, again, has a very slow count, which allows DDP to kick out at two. They have a series of bridges and reversals that ends with DDP hitting a diamond cutter. And both men go crashing down. Buff rolls on DDP. One, two, and a kick out. Buff then goes to the top rope and signals for the blockbuster, but DDP is able to crotch Buff on the top rope. DDP then uh, climbs the ropes, but Buff hits him with a low blow and shoves Paige to the mat. Buff is then actually able to hit a blockbuster. Buff then poses, but Kimberly goes to push him. However, this was a botched spot. I think Buff was supposed to turn and knock her down, but he missed the spot, so Kimberly just sort of like runs into him and falls down as though she's hit a brick wall. She went to shove Buff, and Buff with his hand knocked her down. Accident, guys. Just an accident. Sure it was. Oh! Diamond cutter! That's no accident! Kim then slowly counts the three count, allowing Paige to win. Kim still seems conflicted and immediately runs to the pack. DDP, concerned, follows her, and the show ends. Nate, there was no NWO interference. There was no dumb comedy. Say what you will about Buff as a worker, but these two got a solid amount of time for a Monday night era main event, probably like 10 minutes. And Nate, I wasn't sure we were watching Nitro. This felt like a completely different show. This was a non-NWO segment main eventing the show. There was no comedy. Overall, good segment. Yeah, I think, again, this goes back to the dual evaluation of these segments. You know, what what was the actual match like, and also what were they trying to accomplish? And I think from an actual match standpoint, you know, it was just okay. It, it wasn't, you know, a, a five-star classic or even a six-star classic. Uh, but it was, in my opinion... Uh, it was suitable. It, it, it advanced the storyline. You know, we got some intrigue from Kimberly as the referee. Uh, that spot was a little, a little off at the end because I, I had to go back and watch it a couple times. Like, was Buff supposed to hit her or did she just kind of like, it, it, yeah, it, it didn't quite work, but you know, it told the story that it was trying to accomplish. And so from that standpoint of what was its goal, what was its intent? I think it succeeded on that mark. And, while I was like I was not impressed, I guess would be the word, with the work rate of this match, I think the story they were trying to tell made up for it. Or if not made up for it, it at least uh compensated for for uh maybe some of the lack of the excitement that we saw in the opening match on this show with the uh, cruiserweights. There wasn't crazy stuff here. There wasn't a lot of sexual innuendo. I could imagine if Vince Russo was involved in laying this match out, some of the things would happen. Who would get involved? Pay Kimberly would turn or some shit like that. 
we didn't get that. We got these two guys having this this real feud, and something I complained about last week that I actually like this week is the fact that we haven't seen – it's all allegations. It's all a lot of finger pointing. It's did this happen? Did it not happen? We're playing with that mystery, whereas we didn't necessarily have that last week. Last week was very con- – Fused and muddled, whereas this week we're actually leaning into that and sort of enjoying it. Overall, every segment on this show, even the stuff involving Kevin Nash, was meant to build to something. Other than that three-count crowbar, David Flair match, which was just to get the tag champions on the show and give them a win, everything was building towards something else, which you know, I'll say overall, I think this is the first show that I could actually recommend to our audience. I know a lot of people are, are listening and following along for the sake of I don't I, – if they want to also be you know, clinical trials in this experiment. But this would be the first one that I would actually say to some people, hey, if you want to show that all hope was not necessarily lost, check out this show. This show I felt could have actually over time could have evolved into something that had legs. But we'll see next week that this was not a direction that they were willing to continue in and the Kevin Nash contingent of the booking committee would uh, would have more and more sway going into the future. Yeah, I'd say overall this was a, a solid episode, the best overall show that we've uh, watched so far in this little experiment. Uh, you know, there were, there was some really solid in-ring action, particularly the opening match. Uh, I liked uh, some of the character work that was done in the uh, Bagwell DDP match. Uh, I even really didn't mind a lot of the interaction between Booker T and Stevie Ray, uh, Big T aside. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think if you take away the Nash segment and uh, Mike Tenay doing his best Matt Penfield music snob gimmick, uh, it's 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 probably uh, one of the better shows that we're gonna watch because I've I've looked into the future, I peered ahead, and uh, and yeah, this this might be a a sunny day for us to remember in the uh, midst of winter. So yeah, right now, Nate, it looks like you and I are doing pretty well. Uh, we had a lot of positive things to say about it, but let's go ahead and actually, usually the silver lining can be kind of difficult, but this week we got a lot of options. So Nate, for you, what was your silver lining for this episode of Nitro? And I will force a contingent on you. You cannot say advertisements as they were not produced <laughs> by the people who made this show. So you cannot say ads. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was totally going uh, to go sting. What was your silver lining <laughs> of what actually occurred inside the Ohio State campus? <laughs> uh, well, I got to give an honorable mention to uh, Scott Steiner pummeling the Ohio State mascot because that's just something that always makes me laugh. Mascots <laughs> in, in, in peril. Uh, but I would have to say the thing that surprised me the most and, and maybe gave me the most uh, hope for this episode was the back-to-back segments of the uh, opening match with Kidman and Psychosis immediately followed by Arn's promo. Yeah. Because we got a great in-ring match, a a good little TV match, and then we get somebody actually trying to make sense of an angle. And so just those two things in succession just kind of told me this might be a little bit different than the uh, first two episodes we've watched. And I already said it earlier, my my silver lining is Three Count attempting to finish their dancing while selling their injuries from a tag match. (laughs) So, Nate, if if the first two episodes were having any sort of negative psychological impact on us, I feel like this was a nice breather. This was a nice refresher. So in terms of, you know, we're collecting data now, week three, where are you at mentally? What, What effects is this 
having on you as a subject in this experiment? I got to say, even though they were present on this episode, I felt much less NWO 2000 influence. Uh, it And maybe it's just a subtraction of the entire Terry Funk, old age outlaws type of deal. Because that, that, that wore me down last episode. Yeah, the old age outlaws aren't there anymore. Jarrett's hurt, so he can't be wrestling. That's the the entire NWO on this episode was unable to wrestle. So I think that really helped. <laughs> the Harris brothers are just bodyguards. Kevin Nash bought himself a suit, so there's no way he's going to work tonight. Jarrett's still hurt, and Steiner's still hurt. So when the NWO is just sort of forced to sit in a room all night, the show is pretty good. Yeah, the the, ex- the exclusion of the NWO definitely helped. And I also think we got more wrestling, which at the end of the day – that's what we're here for, you know, and, and you and I talked about it. I don't know if Russo just has an inverted view of, of what wrestling should be, uh, where he sees the in-ring stuff as just a setup for the storylines. But at the end of the day, you're, you're selling matches. At the end of the day, you're selling these conflicts to lead to a payoff. And we got some decent in-ring work on, on this episode, so I can't complain. Yeah, overall, pretty positive. So it's it's weird, even though you're usually the the optimist. I feel like we're both optimists this episode. Uh, now, thankfully, we're able to bottle that optimism and just sort of enjoy it in this moment because we can be future tellers. We can see what's in the future. We know that starting next week, that optimism's going to go away. But one thing that's actually kind of surprised me, and this episode was very surprising. I was not expecting it to like it as much. One thing that surprised me, Nate, is that as we've done this show, we've actually gotten a lot of people telling us that they're going on this journey with us. And it turns out a lot of people are nostalgic for this time period that I didn't realize that they were. And as such, we're going to start having guests coming along this journey. There's actually people that want to watch these episodes with us, as crazy as that is. And that's going to start next week when third member of the Atlanta Boys, the ATL gang, is going to get together again. Greeny is going to be joining us, guys. Alex Greenfield, he's going to be watching us for next week's Nitro, which will see, finally, the end of this heavyweight title charade. We're going to have a heavyweight champion by the end of next week's episode, and Alex Greenfield's going to join us to go through that episode. I'm looking forward to that, man, because uh, it's always good to talk to Brother Greeny, and uh, I think we're we're going to get to introduce a new test subject to this experiment, so that'll be fun. And again, like you mentioned, shout out to all the listeners that are going along with us on, going along with us on this journey. Uh, but shame on you to the listeners that are adding thunder to their plate. Ooh. Uh, because you got to track that down. You got to do some legwork. You got to be on daily motion to find those things. And and like at the end of this episode, when we uh, go off the air with the uh, conclusion of DDP and Buff, Tony Schiavone's like, "What's going on with Kimberly? Maybe we'll get an answer on Thunder Wednesday night." And I'm like, "No, we won't, Tony Schiavone, because nope. I'm not watching it." So if you got something to tell me, tell me either this week on Raw on Nitro or next week on Nitro because I will not be going out of my way to seek thunder. So uh, for those of you that are coming along with us on this journey and uh, especially to those that are adding thunder and the pay-per-views to their watching schedule, uh, you know, God bless you. (laughs) So join us again in two weeks when we'll be reviewing the January 24th episode of the show, crowning a new heavyweight champion, and being joined by Alex Greenfield to discuss that particular episode. Now, to hold you over until that time period, Nate, what words of wisdom do you have for the people when they come to terms with the fact that you and I are actually recommending an episode of Nitro? 
<laughs> well, yes, again, thanks everybody for checking out this episode of Keep It 2000. Uh, hope you dug it, and we'll be back on the next episode with more fun. Uh, and, and fun is always a, a fluid concept, so uh, one man's pain is another man's pleasure. Uh, but I'll leave us with the words of Montel Jordan, since I mentioned him on this episode. Uh, take some words from his biggest hit. Obviously, this is how we do it. Uh, and related back to WCW, because this is how we do it. All hands are in the air. We wave them from here to there. If you're an OG Mac or a wannabe player, you see the hood's been good to me ever since I was a lowercase G, but now I'm a big G. Girl, see, I got the money on my WCW credit card, y'all. Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Urbanovitz. For more shows, check out liveaudiowrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this, this.